Well, I did it. I have finally gotten back to the gym on a regular basis. It's five weeks now. Five weeks. This was a New New Year's resolution for me. Wanted to lose a certain amount of weight. Had some particular goals in mind about just fitness and whatever. So for five weeks, I've been back, uh, hardly missing a day unless it was purposeful for rest or something like that. And my training has, and just hang with me, this is all about Eric for a little bit here. (laughs) My training uh, has really involved three things. Number one, nutrition. Oh, nutrition. Learning to eat better things, less things and better things. And then secondly, again, I've been going to the gym, been working out five days a week, and then trying to do some fat biking or some skiing on the weekends. Um, so I've been doing that. And then the third thing, and this really works for me, it's one of those, uh, those apps, those calorie counter apps. Have you used one of those before? Awesome for me, because somebody will come up to me and say, would you like a fudgy brownie? And I start salivating and I say, I would really like a fudgy brownie or three. And then you go to the little food app and you punch it in and you see the calories and you go, one fudgy brownie is 350 calories. And then you do the other math, which is how much time is that on the treadmill? That's a half hour. Do you want a fudgy brownie? No, I do not want a fudgy brownie. Get behind me, Satan, right? (laughs) And again, all of this uh, sort of training or fitness for me is just so I can squeeze back into my hip waders for fly fishing season, right? So that's what we're doing there. So the reason I bring this up is not just to talk about me, but I have noticed that as I'm getting back into uh, some training and getting some help from a trainer, um, that sometimes the instruction you get is really counterintuitive, okay? Uh, For example, I spoke with the trainer and kind of showed her what I was doing and tried to get some advice on on what I might do differently. And she said, you know, I notice I don't think you have enough rest days in your workout plan. And I thought, see, actually rest was part of the problem, you know? So I didn't really expect that. Okay, I'll try to build that in, okay? And then the other thing she says, I'm looking at your calorie counter thing and I don't think you're eating enough calories. You need to eat more, particularly before your workout. And I'm thinking, same objection. Eating more was part of the problem. I'm trying to reverse these things. And, uh, and then the last one kind of really got me. Um, I was just ex- kind of complaining, explaining, complaining that some of my uh, exercise strategies, uh, some of my weightlifting didn't seem to be very productive. And she said, oh, I can show you how to change the motion that you're, you're using so that we can more effectively tear muscle. And I said, well, wait, wait a minute here. Tear muscle, eat more, and rest more. I think you just want me to like keep paying into the membership dues here or something. You're after, I'm not sure I want to be here anymore. So I found some of the instruction to be counterintuitive in this training program. And that came to mind as I was preparing for this morning and looking at some of the instruction that we find here from Jesus as he is training and teaching his disciples on how to follow him and become more like him. Some of the instruction that he gets or gives is a little puzzling. It's, it's a little counterintuitive. And I find myself thinking, Jesus, 
Are you, are you really serious? Do you mean this? Do you mean what you just said? Do you mean it literally? Is there maybe a, a bit of hyperbole or overstatement in here? Because uh, some of this seems mysterious. So really in the next 20 verses of Mark's gospel, what we find is, is how Jesus is training his disciples. And again, it's counterintuitive. And I think we find at least eight, what I'll call enigmatic uh, teachings or lessons of Jesus. And I'm gonna do my best to unpack some of them. I'm not gonna get to all of them today. We're gonna leave a little meat on the bone for you to work on after, after service here this next week. And I wanna tell you that even as I try to unpack some of this, if I had been with Jesus in Capernaum here, when he starts giving this instruction, I would have had my hand up a lot, you know. Eric, you have another question. I do. I have 17 questions, actually. So let's read this together. or Not together. I'll read it. You listen. How about that? Verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Hmm. Well, this sounds like a good place to stop here. Let's start off by acknowledging the disciples still don't get it. They still don't get it. This is the second time that Jesus has explicitly predicted his death and his resurrection. Uh, just like a chapter and a half ago, we saw this when they were having the conversation. Who do people say that I am? And what about you? Who do you say that I am? And in that sort of encounter, uh, Jesus goes on to tell them that, yeah, the son of man is going to suffer and be handed over and and we'll be crucified and we'll race again. And Peter, right, our guy, steps up and says, Jesus, no, that's not gonna happen. So they didn't get it then in that moment. They don't get it here in this moment. There's even going to be one more uh, in chapter 10 where he explicitly, again, predicts his death and resurrection and they won't get it there. And so it's almost like the disciples have no place in their mind for a suffering Messiah, for a servant leader. They just can't see it. They're so fixed on their faulty expectation of Messiah to immediately rule and immediately reign politically. They just can't imagine a suffering servant Messiah. And we can even see from this particular interaction here, the disciples are really preoccupied with power and with their own prestige. They want Messiah to have power. They want him to use his power immediately to rule and to reign. And then they kind of just want to be, have a seat at the table, right? Because they, they're ambitious. They want to be a part of his powerful rule. And you can almost imagine sort of how this conversation about who is the greatest among them sort of gets sparked. Now I'm using my imagination here. So we hold this with an open hand. But what has just happened? What did we just talk about last week? It was the transfiguration. Jesus ascends the mountain with Peter, James, and John, only three of the 12. And you can imagine these three coming down the mountain, kind of speaking to the other nine like, 
boy, did you guys miss it. I mean, we had a deal. We had an encounter up there. This is who we saw. This is what happened. It was awesome, right? And then you can imagine the other nine going, I I didn't get an invitation. Nobody thought of me. Why didn't I get to go? And then you can imagine, especially Peter or James or John saying, well, I'm pretty great and you're not. And then something like, you think you're better than me? And so again, I'm just using my imagination in the context. This is probably what uh, sort of preceded uh, this particular uh, debate. And so Jesus begins to break down their faulty thinking. Fridays are my day off. Um, this, is, this is the day of the week I try to hide from you guys. And uh, it's Fairbanks, so that's not easy to do. But, um, but on Fridays, very often I'll go up to my wife's kindergarten class up at Weller. And I'll take her a coffee just to help her get through the week. Because happy wife, happy life, right? And uh, someone said amen over here. <laughs> so I, I go and usually I can just kind of lurk in the doorway and let her know I've got her coffee and she'll come and grab it. But this day... She happened to be all the way in the front and she had all of the kids gathered around her and it was story time. And she said, oh, come on in. And I thought, I don't want to. <laughs> and so I made the long walk across the room and I gave her her coffee and the kids are staring me down like they're giving me the stranger danger look, right? Okay. And then um, one kid kind of mouths off and says, who's that? And my wife says, well, that's my husband, Eric. Can you guys say hi? I didn't get any highs. They're just like, <laughs> still looking at me. And then one kid pops off. He says, you're big. And I was like, thanks a lot, kid. I'm working on it. You know, pow. <laughs> then, then another punk, he mouths off. He says, my dad's bigger than you. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, he sounds chubby. Pow, you know. <laughs> And then third one, this one cracked me up. This kid got up from story time, sauntered over, chested up, cute little lisp. And he says, oh yeah, my dad's a million, million, billion. And I was like, yeah, work on your math, kid. Pow. (laughs) I got to get out of here. I I didn't flick any kids, you know, actually, just imaginatively. Uh, This came to mind. This interaction came to mind. I'm working on this passage and I'm thinking, it is incredible how much my encounter with these kindergartners in my wife's classroom is like (laughs) Jesus' interaction with the disciples about who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And the funny thing is when he asks them about it, what do they do? Keep quiet, right? What are you guys talking about? Crickets. Same thing my family does when I say, who ate all the peanut M&Ms? It's crickets. And why is there crickets? Shame, right? They're ashamed. They know they're wrong. They know they shouldn't be talking like this or about this. They're embarrassed and they ought to be. I was reading a particular commentary this week, one that I really like. Uh, It's become my new favorite and kind of my go-to. But it suggested that um, in the first century world, this kind of discussion about who is the greatest isn't maybe as offensive then as it might be on our modern Western ears, because in that culture, one really had to try to establish themselves, their status in the community. What do you think about that? No way. 
They're embarrassed, right? They're ashamed of their own comments such that when Jesus asked, what were you talking about? Not gonna say anything. They were embarrassed. And the reason I bring that up is just to sort of encourage you in your Bible reading. Uh, use use uh, study Bibles, use commentaries. They can be really helpful, but do not let them muzzle a clear reading of the text. Prioritize the scriptures, okay? They can be, the, those commentaries, those tools can be helpful, but you can interpret God's word by using good skills. And we, t- we talk to you about this all the time and try to train you in this so you don't just hear us teach, but you know how to nourish yourself from God's word. So read carefully. Pray, ask that God would give you understanding. Use just those good tools that we've given you about reading in context, right? Looking for things like repetition. Those three questions that, you know, I think ought to just be burned in your mind by now. What did this mean to the original hearers? What's the timeless principle? And how is that timeless principle significant to my life? Also consider the question here when Jesus asked, what were you guys arguing about? Uh, Was Jesus actually in the dark about that? Was he lacking some knowledge or information about what they were arguing about? No way. And you can tell by the next thing that comes out of his mouth. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He knew their conversation. He knew what they were arguing about. Then he goes on in verse 36. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, How can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's all perfectly clear, right? Let me just make an observation here. I will say this, that the the real genius of Jesus' teaching and his training is that he makes you come and get it. He places it just, just out of reach oftentimes. He's inviting you to explore 
and to work and to question and to wrestle with what's here. And it might take time and effort, conversations with other believers, but he's challenging you to do that. Uh, sometimes by being a little bit opaque. In other words, we might all say with, with all respect to Jesus, I need to be careful here, with all respect to Jesus, pastor is not dissing Jesus. Okay, so say to yourself, pastor is not dissing Jesus. All right. But we might say to Jesus, you know what? It sure seems like you could have been a little clearer. With all of your knowledge and your communication ability, it seems like you could have made this simpler and easier and more accessible. And I think his reply to that comment would be something like this. Yeah, Eric, I could have made it easier. And then you wouldn't have bothered with it. I think there's something about the mystery and the challenge that invites us in, that begs us to pursue understanding. In other words, Jesus uses parables at times, not just to reveal truth, but sometimes to conceal it. He uses hard sayings at times to distinguish between those who are true followers and those who are just fair weather friends. And he uses tools like hyperbole and overstatement just again so that we will have to kind of stretch out and wrestle with what he's saying because it sounds a little counterintuitive. In other words, hard-won victories or discoveries rather, hard-won discoveries, these tend to be discoveries that we hold for a long time and with deep conviction. But easy answers, I think, are often frittered away and forgotten. So the truth is there for the taking, but you got to want it. You got to work for it. You got to wrestle it out a little bit here. So what we're going to do is quickly, I'm just going to work through seven of these sort of principles that he lays out here. And so the first one is this, whoever wants to be first must become the servant of all. And what Jesus is really dealing with here is human pride, right? Or what St. Augustine called the monstrous savagery of pride. How's that for some language? Uh, and we know pride is the original sin. It was the original rebellion in heaven when Lucifer rebelled and was cast out. It's the original sin on earth uh, by Adam and Eve, who in pride wanted to be like God and rebelled against him. And pride was right here present with the disciples as they're having this conversation among them about who is the greatest. Who's the goat? That's what they're asking themselves, the greatest of all time, right? And we, we might see these conversations on ESPN or something like that, talking about one of the greatest athletes of all time or the greatest NBA basketball player of all time. So let me ask you, who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it Oscar Robinson, Bill Russell, Kareem? Is it Kobe? LeBron, Michael Jordan? The answer is Michael Jordan. <laughs> if you answered otherwise, you probably have cats too. <laughs> oh yeah. I think uh, this particular passage is often misunderstood or I at least think that I have misunderstood parts of it over the years. Um, this has been a, a week of good learning for me. In other words, I think sometimes the wrong reading of this sounds like this. If you want to be the greatest, then here's how to do it. Just get in the back of the line. 
And so I think for a long time, what I, what I, I thought Jesus was basically teaching was that the way to greatness was through service and by going last. But here's the problem. If I want to be the greatest, if I want to be the goat, and I simply go to the back of the line to achieve this, has my heart changed any? No, just my tactics. That's all. Now, I'm just a person who wants to be great and does so by simply standing in the back of the line smugly. And guess what? If that's what I'm doing, I am still self-preoccupied. I am still filled with pride or the monstrous savagery of pride. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is he is telling the self-seeking person to learn to go last, not so they can be smugly standing in the back of the line, still self-seeking, but frankly, so they'll quit wanting to go first. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, if your heart is riddled with pride, such that you want to be the goat, then go kill your pride by learning to serve everyone else. And in serving them, you will rightfully increase your estimation of them and you will begin mortifying your own arrogance. And I think that's what he's getting at here. He's getting at a heart change, not just a change of tactics. He's not giving a roadmap to greatness so much as he's teaching how to kill human pride that wants it. And the reality is there is no better antidote to human pride than lowly service. That's just the way it is. If you're one who wants greatness, you want to be the goat, then I would encourage you, uh, sign up for the nursery next week. Get a little baby slobber on you or spit up, whatever they've got going. Change a diaper. You want to be the greatest? Take out the trash. You want to be the greatest? Go clean the family bathroom. You want to be the greatest? Wash someone else's dishes. Fold the laundry. Get out of your house and go down to the soup kitchen and prepare a meal for someone you might normally just overlook on the streets. You want to be the greatest? Go sub at a local school. They could really use the help right now. Don't flick any kids while you're there. <laughs> if your heart wants to be first, then mortify that longing by the practice of putting everyone else first. Learn to serve. Learn to love going last, not just looking for greatness in a new way. Secondly, he who welcomes a child welcomes me and my father. I should pause here because some of you are like, he's on two. There's eight. And uh, just, we're just going gonna, gonna to pick up our pace, so don't worry. Um, in this particular instance, I think there is a cultural difference we need to be aware of. And that's how children were regarded in the, in the culture. In our culture, man, the kids run the house. They're the tail that wags the dog, right? In our culture, kids are given rights and privileges. Uh, it's, a, it's amazing how important they are in our culture, okay? In, in the first century culture, uh, they loved their kids. They were a blessing. 
but they did not have that same regard. They were considered some of the lowly ones or the least of these. Jesus refers to them in that way many times, even while saying we ought to receive them. But it's important to understand that difference because when Jesus pulls this little one, they're probably in Peter's home, actually. So this may well be one of Peter's kids. So when they pull him, you know, this, this little boy or girl into the center of the room and he pulls him into his arms and kind of draws people's attention, he's not saying, when you welcome this cute, beautiful, good-smelling little cherub, it's more like he's saying, and this is a little bit hard, it's more like he's saying, when you welcome this noisy, snotty, grubby little ankle biter, <laughs> when you're welcoming the, the least of these, you're welcoming me and my father who sent me. And this lesson here, again, it, this is not so much to elevate the, the status of children so much as it is the, our Lord's continual assault on human pride because the disciples are riddled with it. And I think more than that, it's also to instruct the disciples that our relationship with God is not just on a vertical plane, but also on a horizontal plane. We don't just love God directly, but even indirectly as we love those that he loves. This is even the way that the Ten Commandments are framed. First four about loving God. Next six about loving your neighbor. It's how the greatest commandment is given by Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's even uh, John, the Apostle John, who here in this particular moment doesn't get it. Later on, when he writes his epistle, he does. And he says this in 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Part of the way we love God is by loving those that he loves. Uh, so these first two enigmatic statements that we uh, get from Jesus here are really, I think, about assaulting human pride that is so prevalent, particularly in the disciples at this moment. So you think, okay, the disciples would probably get this. Jesus has really been after him. He even used a good object lesson. Uh, he's kind of slapped their hands. If you want to be the greatest, kill your pride by becoming a servant. If you want to love God, learn to love the least of these. So surely they've got it by now, right? Look at the next thing out of John's mouth. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. I mean, that's junior high theology, right? That's, you can't sit at our table. You can't have lunch with us. You're not one of us. That is the pride and the arrogance that is still on display among the disciples here. And I think Jesus has got to just have a massive eye roll when they say this. Like, I've already told you twice. Again, I used an object lesson. Get off this turf war, would you please? And I want to take the next three things that he says all at once. Uh, essentially, kind of breaking it down, don't protest a miracle done in my name. And then this statement, which I think is troublesome, whoever is not against us is for us. And then finally, respect even a cup of water given in my name. So for me personally, this section of Jesus' teaching and his instruction, this is the most counterintuitive for me. This, I, have, I have some questions here. I would be raising my hand again. Jesus, is that what you meant to say? And so my initial objection 
And I'm just being honest with you, and I should probably just say this. I believe everything that the scripture says to be true. Sometimes I have to believe that by faith first before I see it worked out in life, okay? So, or to use Augustine's phrase, faith seeking understanding. I believe what he's saying here to be true. I just don't always experience it this way. Let me give you an example. I would be inclined to say, Jesus, I know of all kinds of people who claim your name, who don't want to have anything to do with you. They're charlatans, they're fakes, they're phonies. They posture themselves as those who are for your name, but instead they're actually predatory, preying upon people and feathering their own nest. And I could list names, but you already know some of them, right? So we know this. Whoever is not against us is for us. I don't find this always to be true. So, uh, but I'll make an observation here. Notice this phrase here, depending on your translation, it says soon or in the next moment. Whoever does a miracle in my name is not likely in the next moment to then speak a word against me, right? And I think that helps us to kind of gives us a caveat here. This is not something that's absolutely true in every time and every place. It's more that he's giving a proverbial truth. If someone were to do a miracle in Jesus' name in the next breath, they're not going to curse his name. People would see the hypocrisy. In other words, I think what Jesus is basically saying is, pick your battles. Pick your battles, disciples. The concern of the disciples here really is still all about themselves, right? They're protecting their turf. They're protecting their brand, their tribe. They're not really concerned about the integrity of Jesus' ministry here. This is still self-preoccupation. And I think the principle that's being taught here is this, that we ought to have a general attitude of grace toward others. In other words, God uses different people in different places in different ways, right? Their gifting may be different than my gifting. And I would just say it's so easy to judge somebody else based upon our own gifting. I'll give you an example of that in my life, and I mean this confessionally, okay? It's really challenging for me, uh, if I'm traveling, to go to another church, I'll go to another church and I'll hear, I'll hear a brother, a pastor get up to preach and I'm sitting there and by God's grace, teaching is, I think, a gift that God has given to me. Sometimes they're better than others, I know. But I can sit there and listen to another preacher and I can think, oh, ooh, I wouldn't have said it that way. Man, you missed a good illustration. You could have done such and such. I totally agree with your, interp- or disagree with your interpretation. And I can sit in judgment of somebody else based upon the gifts that God has given to me. And I'm sure you can do it in your life as well. Their gifting may not be our gifting. Their methods may not be our methods. Their passions may not be our passions. And that's okay. We can do more harm than good perpetuating turf wars because someone who isn't us or isn't ministering in the way that we would is still doing something in the name of Jesus. And I think that's another important aspect here. This is the second observation I would make. Uh, We talked to you about repetition, right? Is there any repetition in this passage? Yeah, this phrase in the name or in my name. 
In fact, it's used, I think, twice here in such a way as to create, here's kind of a rhetorical device or a literary device called an inclusio. It's a fancy term. Typically, we see it in Hebrew poetry, like in Psalm 8, where it begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And then the psalm concludes with that same line. An inclusio is a way of saying with the first line and the last line that everything in between here is about this. So it's meant to kind of wrap it up so we understand it. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here by saying, you know, whether a miracle is done in my name or a cup of water in my name. In other words, if someone is doing ministry in my name, extend some grace, give them some room. Whoever's not against us is for us. Conversely, if you start, if your starting point with people is a position of distrust and suspicion and competition or turf wars, you're going to end up hurting a lot of people, you're going to ruin a lot of relationships, and you're going to restrain a lot of otherwise very wonderful ministry. In other words, be more concerned about the name of Jesus than about your own name. So then we get to this part, and I'm not going to reread the whole thing here, about causing little ones to stumble and a millstone around your neck. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Your eyes gouge them out, feet, lop them off. Now let me ask you the question here. Do you think Jesus is serious about what he's saying? Do you think he means it literally? Now, by looking at you, I'm kind of going, I think you think there's some hyperbole here because most of you have two eyes, two hands, and you still have two feet. And so you kind of notice, you know intuitively that Jesus is using hyperbole here. And I think that the principle that we should get at, so there's two things here. One, he warns about leading others into sin and he warns about letting sin uh, reign in us. The point that he's getting at is be severe with sin. Be shrewd with sin in your life. Don't give it any quarter. Don't give it any room. Um, I still love what John Owen has said. He said it better than almost anybody. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Because once again, pride says, I just have this little indulgence. It's just mine. It's just, it's private. It's not hurting anybody. I can keep it in check. I can keep it tame. I manage it just fine. It's just quiet. It's just on the down low. After all, my sin, it's just a little baby dragon. But the problem with baby dragons is the same thing as baby cats. They both grow up to become ugly, right? Sorry, I just had to wake you up there. Kill off the baby dragons in your life. Be shrewd with sin. Be shrewd with it because you never know where it might actually take you. And I think the way we really kill off sin is through something the evangelical church has nearly forgotten and that is confession. It doesn't have to just be to a pastor or an elder. It can be to a friend, a family member, a deacon here at the church. But learn to speak your sin out loud to someone confessionally. This is something I'm dealing with. This is an area I'm failing and I confess it as wrong and I bring it out into the light because when we bring it into the light, that's where we starve sin. Sin does not want to be there. And then the flip side of that is 
We can have this believer in Jesus Christ declare to us the wonderful truth of the gospel, that your sin, this one that you just named, has been paid for in Jesus and is forgiven and is no longer held against you. And we need to hear that truth, and we need to hear that truth spoken. Sin thrives in secret, so bring it into the light. Be shrewd with it, because God was severe with sin in Christ. The last one here, uh, verses 49 through 50, I'm not going to do. I told you, I want to leave a little meat on the bone for you, and here's my challenge. Number one, this is the hardest one, so I don't want to do that one. Number two, I want to encourage you to take one of these sort of enigmatic statements and learn to have good Bible conversations with friends, with your small group, uh, with the woman that you walk with, with your workout partner, someone you get coffee with. Talk about this this week. Study it out. See if you can discern what Christ is saying in context here. So the training of Jesus, not always easy, not always obvious, sometimes counterintuitive, right? But I think it is his way of saying, come on, do you want to learn of me? I challenge you. I dare you. Come on. And that's my prayer for you this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did train disciples. You not only showed us the way, but you also spoke the way. You did both. Lord, may we have the guts and the courage to dive into scripture, hard passages that are counterintuitive, that confront us with ourselves. And may we learn of them. May we learn of you. May we learn to be like you. Holy Spirit, help us this week as we think about Jesus, his teachings, and as we talk to one another about it. We pray in his name, amen.